We are continuing our series, um, Did God Really Say?, looking at the doctrine of Scripture. And um, a couple of things up front. First, for the series itself, just in terms of format. Last week, we looked at uh, Scripture as revelation. We, we wrestled with the idea that Christianity presents um, that God speaks into human history, that he has spoken, uh, that he is speaking, uh, and uh, how that gets around the, the muddled reality of our, our postmodern conundrum of how can we truly know what's outside, what's beyond, what's different, and we talked about how easy it would be for the infinite God to bridge that gap, even though we embrace, in fact, more than the postmodernists, the difficulty on our end in observation, because we aren't just limited. We're sinful. We're rebellious. As Paul says, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Nevertheless, God desires to be known and have made himself known. So now that we've laid that foundation, what we're going to look at for the next few weeks are uh, the attributes of Scripture that were articulated by uh, the voices of the Reformation. Okay? Um, now, in that day and age, the two big topics of discussion, the topics of the Reformation, the argument that was being had between the Catholic Church and Martin Luther and his followers, uh, one of them involved the church. What is the church? How does it function? And intimately related to that is the Bible. Okay, how do the scriptures work? And in those dialogues, they codified or labeled four different aspects or attributes of what the Bible is. And here's what they are, and this will be our structure for this week as well as the next three weeks. Uh, first, there is the necessity of scripture. Next week, we'll look at the sufficiency of scripture. And then the clarity of Scripture, if you want to be really nerdy, the word you'll find in big books is the perspicuity of Scripture, but could you think of a less clear word that means clear? Um, it's like abbreviation, right? It just doesn't sound like what it is. Uh, so the clarity of Scripture, and then finally the authority of Scripture. And if, if you're counting, that leaves us one week left where we'll focus on the power of Scripture. Because we don't just think that the Bible has these attributes innately, we also think that it is enabled to accomplish things in our life. And so that's where we're going. And the reason why this series is essential, the reason why the doctrine of Scripture or our views on the Bible is so important is because this is the lens through which we determine what else Christians should believe. What you believe about the Bible shapes how you know what you should believe about everything else. Okay? And so, uh, with that in mind, uh, we are doing this series, and uh, because I want to um, really think these things through and meet everybody where they're at and deal with some significant and important questions of our time on these things, uh, we are also doing a text-in Q&A uh, just following uh, the sermon tonight. And so if while I'm talking tonight, something occurs, you have a question, uh, you can see a text number just at the top of the screen there. Um, and then if you stick around after the sermon, we'll go through and answer as many of those as we can. Um, uh, if, if tonight it, by any chance is the only night you can join us, we'll continue to do this as well as uh, record uh, the Q&A um, so you can continue to tune in. 
Tonight, as we look at the necessity of Scripture, um, last week we started in the book of Isaiah. This week I want to turn to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. So if you have a Bible, please open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible tonight, there's one right in front of you in the back of the pew. And just a few pages in, you'll find an index. The book we're in is in the New Testament. It's 1 Corinthians. Go ahead and turn there. In the beginning of the New Testament, we find four Gospels that record uh, the life, works, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Um, so after all of that goes down, after all of that happens, and there's this new church of people who have received Jesus as the long-awaited coming one, as the Messiah, um, Many Jews who don't believe in Jesus uh, are trying to figure out what to do with this newfound sect of Christianity. One person in particular, a man by the name of Saul, devotes his life to devastating this new heresy and trying to get rid of it. And it continues on and on. In fact, he's a significant cause of the dispersion of the church in Jerusalem because the persecution is raging so, raging so fierce. Um, but while he is headed to another place, to Damascus, to continue his um, terror against the Christian church, he encounters the living Jesus for himself. And he goes from being, you know, um, Christian enemy number one to the greatest propagator of the Christian faith. And so much of our New Testament is written by Saul, who we know as Paul. And not only did he go around and preach to Jews, but he also, in a very intense way, started to move all over the Roman Empire uh, and preach to non-Jewish people or Gentiles as well. Uh, this letter, 1 Corinthians, is written to a Gentile church that Paul planted in the ancient city of Corinth in the first century. Now, uh, the Gentiles that make up this church, for the most part, came to know Jesus uh, and uh, that was apart from the Old Testament. Okay? They encountered who Jesus was, but unlike in the synagogues, where Paul would go, these are the things the Old Testament says, they are truly speaking of Jesus, here's the eyewitness testimony to prove it. Uh, instead, the Gentiles came through a side door, and so their culture was Gentile in nature. In fact, uh, the Corinthians, the struggle of this book, if you read it as a whole, uh, is, is basically they're having a hard time shaking who they were. And so a lot of the things that they were before they became Christians, they're now grafting in or leaving alone in their Christian life. Okay? Now, one of the things that's most important for us tonight uh, is that the Corinthian, the city of Corinth, had a high... Uh, a high view of wisdom and philosophy. In fact, the city was full of people who made a living as public speakers in the philosophical sense. Oftentimes, those people made their money uh, just like public speakers would today through ticketed admission or the support of their fans or things like that. And, uh, and basically, everybody in Corinth had a wisdom speaker had a wisdom leader, a teacher. 
Um, and so they looked for things like eloquence. They looked for impressive arguments. They looked for logic and the ability to defeat opponents. That was just part of the Corinthian life. And then Paul comes in and he preaches Jesus Christ and many become Christians, but this is still a significant part of their life. In fact, after the dust kind of settles in this conversion, they start to look at Paul and they go, oh, he's kind of embarrassing. He's, he's not impressive like the other speakers. Uh, and at the same time, they're also, once again, read through the whole letter and you'll see this, they're also taking many significant parts of Greek thought and trying to graft them into Christianity. And so Paul is writing here a letter of correction, trying to get them back on course and help them recalibrate around how different Christianity is than the things that they knew before. In doing so, uh, we get to engage with the second idea that is important to us. We've already talked about the fact that God speaks. Now we need to talk about the necessity of Scripture. And before we go any further, before we even read the passage, let me just nail one more thing down. Okay? We say that the Scripture uh, has this attribute of necessity because it is revelation. And all of God's communication involves this attribute. That's important to say because as we start to explain here, you're going to go, hey, wait a minute. How is it that scripture is necessary when we go back to the days of Moses and they didn't have much Bible to speak of? In fact, what if we go back to the days of Abraham and there's no Bible at all because he's literally living out what makes up the oldest book of the scriptures? Okay, the idea here that we're talking about is that to truly know who God is, to know him intimately, to know him personally, we, are, uh, we have to have revelation. And the reason why we say the scriptures have this attribute of, uh, attribute of necessity, because it is revelation. It's not the only way God communicates. He communicates in the Bible through dreams, through visions, uh, through speaking, just straight out of the heavens into people's consciousness, uh, through his prophets who he calls, all of that is true. But that same facet, that same attribute that, is, uh, that we're talking about tonight also applies to our Bible as a whole. Now as we read this passage together, I want you to notice that Paul is making a contrast. He has two items that he's pointing to, item A and item B, specifically the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. Uh, and in doing so, he sets us up to understand why we say that one of the attributes of Revelation, including Scripture, is its necessity. Now, let's read together in verse 6. Yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? 
So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Let's pray. Father, we pray tonight not merely because you are the God who hears, although we thank you for that truth, Lord, that we're not just speaking into the void, but that you hear our prayers. But more than that, Lord, you are the God who speaks. So as we open your word tonight, God, we ask that you would speak to us here and now, that the self-same spirit who authored the scriptures would also illuminate those scriptures for us and help us to understand the truth that is spoken in your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Now, Paul has spent the first chapter and a half explaining why his preaching is unimpressive. And he gives basically two reasons. One is because what God has done in Jesus Christ is inherently foolish to the wisdom of this world. He says to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. But to us, it's the power of God unto salvation. Okay? It's uh, counterintuitive, he says. The second thing he says, though, is that he intentionally laid down eloquence or the appearances of wisdom so that their trust would not be in him as a communicator, but in the God who sent Jesus Christ and the power of the cross alone. Okay. Now, that's worth pointing out because Paul actually is a relatively eloquent guy to the degree that people, including non-Christians, still make a habit of quoting his words 2,000 years later. Just think of 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, and how often it's read at weddings and these things. Uh, it's, Paul was far from some sort of ineloquent doofus. Okay. But when he came to the Corinthians, he looked around and he went, okay, everybody's going to get the wrong reason unless I operate under severe self-control. And so he says, when I came among you, I determined to know nothing, nothing at all, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so here he says, however, that doesn't mean we haven't given you wisdom. That doesn't mean we haven't given you insight into the way the world really works. He says here, yet among the mature, verse 6, we do impart wisdom. And then he begins the contrast. He says, but it is different. I want you to notice how it's different tonight. He says, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God. Okay, so there's the wisdom of this age and then there's the wisdom of God. That's the contrast he's making. Now, it's worth pointing out here that when it says the wisdom of this age, Paul is not referring to merely the first century. He's speaking in a theological concept that runs through the whole Bible, which is a contrast between this age and the age to come, if you're reading the Old Testament. Okay? What the New Testament declares is that that age to come dawns in the death, burial, and especially the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? And so, 
in the same way that the age before Jesus is now passing away, so also the new age that's all Jesus all the time forever is dawning, and there's an overlap there. Okay? And so he's not merely talking about first century wisdom, but what we, what we would call worldly wisdom. And I don't mean that in the old religious sense of worldly as in evil. I mean worldly as in human, human wisdom. Okay? And right here, we can notice that Paul emphasizes limitations of human wisdom. And the first thing he mentions uh, is that it's the wisdom of this, uh, of this age, or he clarifies, of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Now, it is worth pointing out here that when Paul evokes the rulers of this age, and in the next verse when he says, the rulers I'm talking about are the ones who put Jesus to death, that he does have certain things in mind, okay? Namely, Pilate and Herod and the Jews, right? The end chapters of the gospel is what he's talking about here. And it's worth remembering today that those were significant highlights in human history in three different and important areas, okay? In the first century, the Jewish religion stands alone. It is monotheistic in a polytheistic world, okay? Where the religions aren't polytheistic, believing in many gods, it's pantheistic, meaning an impersonal god that flows through all things. Judaism alone spoke of one God, one creator. Not only that, but it was a highlight of religious in its ethical qualities to the degree that Western culture today is still inevitably shaped by the Ten Commandments, right? Then we have the Greeks. We have the Greek culture, and the Greek culture is the pinnacle of philosophical thought. Now, that may seem odd to you, considering we've moved on for 2,000 years, but if you read up to 1500, basically we built on the foundation that Plato and Aristotle and friends laid. And what happens after 1500? Do we finally find a way to escape it? No, we start something different that leads to postmodernism, and it's basically an anti-philosophy. It doesn't explain all things, it explains all things away. We've never really been able to beat the articulation that comes from Plato and Aristotle. And so we have the height of Greek culture in wisdom. We have the height of Jewish culture in religion. And then finally with Rome, we have the height of Roman culture in politics. The great Roman Empire, which accomplishes the Pax Romana and conquers more territory than anyone else in history and rules over it for almost a thousand years. It's these high points of human history that put Jesus to death. Okay. Now, also, although he's talking about the rulers of this age and the rulers he has in mind are there, and the age he has in mind is just human history, it's also worth recognizing that this gives us a window into the limitations of wisdom in and of itself, which is that it's just the wisdom of this age. Okay. And so even if we look over human history, uh, we see a constant, tumultuous change of human thought. Okay. Even if you follow the history of philosophy, if you take philosophy 101 and they teach it rightly, there's other ways to do this, I think they're all dumb. Okay. The right way to teach an introduction to philosophy is in order. Meaning you start with Plato and then guess what? His student became a philosopher and guess what he taught? Plato was completely wrong, I'll give you the real deal. Okay? Every philosopher was a reaction to an earlier philosopher, and it swung 
to some degree, back and forth like a pendulum throughout history, okay? Um, but uh, we can see this in so, so many other places. Just think of how differently somebody living in the 15th century England or the second century uh, Egypt thought about the world, about the meaning of life, about how to live a good life, about what health was and how to be healthy. Now, we have a tendency to remove ourselves from that because we're farther removed chronologically. And so we think, yeah, but that's all crazy ideas we see from our perspective because we know better. I would suggest to you that our grandkids will say the same thing. They will look at us and go, I can't believe they believed X, Y, and Z. That's such a weird way to think about things, okay? Um, here's just a really quick way to think of this. Think of the foods that when you were a child, we weren't supposed to eat because of cholesterol. And now we're supposed to eat them, right? And this is the, this is the, the part that's important. There's a reason for this, okay? The reason is simply this. When we think about life, any in individual given fact is subject to change based on the other facts around it. Okay, so cholesterol. No, don't eat that. It's full of cholesterol. And then we study a little bit further and we go, actually, some cholesterol is good cholesterol. So is it a good cholesterol or a bad cholesterol? That changes how we view that particular food. Okay, it's kind of like if you've ever played Othello with the little round chips that are black on one side and white on the other. And what happens when you play well and you put a black piece right next to a bunch of white pieces, it flips all the other ones around it. Okay, that's how human thinking works. And so at any given moment, we may understand life in a way because we don't understand a significant thing. We're missing something, and because of that, it makes everything else wrong. Okay? Think of Einstein's theory of relativity. Okay? It doesn't throw out Newtonian physics, but it does make nonsense of only Newtonian physics. It changes the game. It's a paradigm shift, right? So effectively then, even for us to know our own life, leave God out of it for a second. The only way that we can operate with certainty on any fact is to know all the facts with certainty. Okay? That's the limit of the wisdom of this age. And so notice here it says that the rulers of this age and their wisdom, that's the implication, are doomed to pass away. In other words, at the sum total of human history, every human's going to look back and say, well, we were more wrong than right. Now, actually, once again, those of us who understand postmodernism understand that they actually agree. Our culture actually agrees with that. That's why it says stop being so certain. Stop acting like you really know what's going on. Operate under a little hermeneutical humility. Okay? In fact, it usually moves further and says, just like Einstein's theory of relativity, socially, there's a relative ability for us to know the truth. All truth is relative because all of our perspectives are different and limited, okay? Paul agrees with that. He says the wisdom that we know is tremendously limited, but the problem we have is greater than that. It's not only um, looking at the world as it is, but really what Paul wants to talk about is a right and appropriate knowledge of God, okay? And so notice when he contrasts the wisdom of this age with the wisdom of God, what he says in verse seven, but we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So notice there first, their wisdom is passing away, 
But God's wisdom is timeless. Before there were ages, God's wisdom was decreed. It pre-existed human thought. It will exist after all human thinking is over. Okay? There's a permanence to it. And then the second thing, notice, is that he says that the wisdom of God is secret and hidden. Now, that word there for secret is the Greek word mysterion, where we get our English word mystery. In fact, if you're not reading the ESV tonight, it might even say we impart a wisdom of mystery or a mysterious wisdom. Okay? Now, here's the thing you have to understand. The English concept today of mystery, of mystery is a little bit different than this word. When we use the word in the modern English language, we almost always refer to an enigma, to something that can't be understood, okay? Like that show we watched when we were kids, Unsolved Mysteries, right? That's what makes them mysteries is that they're unsolved. We don't have the answer for them. That's not what the word means here. Like the ESV points, it, it points to, it involves the concept of a secret, but not in the sense of an unknown secret, but something that you can only know through disclosure. Do you see the difference there? And so Paul actually, what he says is the secret wisdom of God. He also says, I have it. I have the secret wisdom of God. I know it personally. But the idea of mysterion or mystery or secret here is that he has it because it's been declared to him, because it's been given to him. Okay. In other words, he didn't learn it through observation or discovery. And he says the wisdom of God you can't actually learn through observation or discovery. Now, why is that the case? Notice as we continue on here, um, uh, look at when he quotes in verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the hearts of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Do you see the three descriptions in that verse? He quotes here from Isaiah, and he says, no one has heard this. No one has seen this, and no heart has imagined this. Okay? That's the wisdom of God that he's talking about. What does he say? He says that it cannot be discovered by observation. He says, most likely, when he refers to the ear here, that it cannot be passed along as tradition. And then finally, that it cannot be discovered through the imagination, through philosophy, that it can't just be thought up. Here, basically, Paul says there's one thing that human reason, observation, science, etc. can't do. That's why revelation is necessary. Now, let's be really clear here. As we saw last week, there is a part of God's revelation that is us, creation. And because of that, the Bible maintains General revelation is something that everybody has, everybody observes, and it is enough to know certain things about our world and the God who made it. So Psalm 19 declares the heaven, declares the glory of God. Day after day it utters its speech. It's like a lived out sermon that points to God's glory. Paul pushes even further. He says in Romans chapter 1, because the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen. Do you hear the paradox there? The unseen is made visible, Paul says. The invisible attributes of God are clearly seen in the things that he had made. And then he says, so we are without excuse. Paul says in Romans 1, everyone knows perfectly well 
because of creation that God exists. Now, the idea there is not just referring to rainbows and uh, sunshine and mountains and things like that, majesty of creation, but also what Francis Schaeffer calls the mannishness of man. Okay? In other words, when we look at ourselves, when we look at the human condition, it implies something more than just the material universe. It implies something more, uh, something divine. It implies a God who created us. Okay. Um, but what observation and reason can't do is tell us personally about that God. That there is a God, and maybe even some of his attributes, like his power, and probably because of the mannishness of man, even the morality of God, and that we're responsible to him. All of those things are discernible, discernible by general revelation, but that's where it stops. In fact, we see it here. I want you to notice a few things about this secret and hidden wisdom of God. The first one has to do with that last line of his quotation here, what God has prepared for those who love him. What does the word preparation point to there? It points to purpose. Okay. We can look at the world as it is, and scientifically, we can learn a lot of things about how it works. But what we cannot discern through science is what it's for. Imagine if you came across, in the middle of the desert, a massive machine, and no one's around. Through years and years of testing and observation, of taking it apart, putting it back together, you could learn a lot of things. You could figure out how it works, how one piece influences another. You could figure out a lot of things, but the more complex the machine, the less likely you are to know what it was made for or what it does. In fact, it doesn't even take a complex machine to do this. Just watch Antiques Roadshow and watch how often somebody brings a random item then they have no idea what it, what it does, right? Even though it's relatively simple, okay? For that, the purpose, you need to understand, you need to know, you need to interact with the maker or someone who knows why the maker made it, okay? And so here, it's the same thing. And we need to recognize the limitation of science and reason. There are many things as Christians that we should embrace in terms of science and reason and what it can tell us about life because we believe that God made the world and that he made it reasonably. And so we should expect science to work. In fact, all of the scientists who laid down the method of science were people who believed in God and therefore thought science was worthwhile because it wouldn't just be chaos under a microscope. They expected a God of order to make a universe of order that would play by the rules, okay? However, science can't tell us the meaning of life. It can't tell us our purpose as human beings. It can't tell us what it's for. Now, when we take this and then we take the secret and hidden wisdom, let's add one more thing to it. Notice what Paul says in verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? This is what he says. How do people know what you're thinking? Is it through observation? Is it an educated guess? Do they use and evoke their reason and imagination? No, the only way they can really know what you're thinking is if you tell them. The only difference, the only unique aspect is when you're thinking about what you're thinking, you know what you're thinking because you're thinking it, right? 
And he says God's the same way. He says the Spirit of God alone knows the mind of God because he is searching the depths of God, because he is a part of the Godhead. But do you know what we've learned when we talk about purpose and the thoughts of God? What is the limitation? Why do we need revelation? It's because God is a person. It's because the knowledge that the Bible presents is not just about an observable God, but a personal one. If we want to know his thoughts, if we want to know his character, okay, then we need more than just observation. Imagine, imagine you find yourself in a room with another person. You can probably learn a lot about that person through observation. You can walk around the room, you can see what they're, what they're wearing, you can go all Sherlock and determine all sorts of factors about their life, but you will not know who they are, what they think, what their desire is, unless you ask them. Paul talks about this limitation that we experience as human beings specifically to a bunch of non-Christians in Athens. Now, if you read the book of Acts, a lot of the places we find Paul's preaching are in synagogues. And so how does Paul preach Jesus in the synagogues? He says, the scriptures say, and they've been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But for somebody who's not a Jew, somebody who doesn't believe the Bible is the word of God, Paul takes a different tact, and we see him do it twice. Once in chapter 14 of Acts with uh, the city of Lystra, and there, once again, he points to what natural revelation does. He says, God has not left himself without a witness, but he has given you rain in good season and pleasure in your hearts. Right? There's things in life that point to the possibility and the existence of God. But he also refers to it as the time of ignorance. And when he's speaking in Acts chapter 7 to Athens, he says, I want to talk to you about an altar I saw in your city to the unknown God. The God that you don't know, he's the one I want to tell you about. And then he goes on and he also touches on this idea of natural revelation. And he says that God has been so at work in human life and he's done this. He haven't, hasn't left himself without a witness. Why? So that we would all grope in the darkness for him. Even though he says he's not far from any of us. Okay? That's the picture of the human condition. We can know that someone is there. But it's like feeling our way in the darkness. We can feel the presence of God, but not know who he is. It's like playing a game of Marco Polo when the person on the other end refuses to say Polo. But what we're talking about tonight in the nature of Revelation, what Paul declares here in this passage, is that God has said Polo. He has made himself known, speaking into the world that we live in. And in doing so... Notice here, first, verse 9 again. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, oftentimes, I hear this verse preached in Christian settings about heaven. It usually goes something like this. Guys, we cannot even imagine what heaven's going to be like. Paul says here that no eye has ever seen anything like it, no ear has heard, and we can't even in our hearts figure out what it's like. But Paul's not talking about something future, but something present. Notice what he says next. 
He says, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through his spirit. He says these things that we can't figure out from the outside, the things that God has prepared for those who love them, we know about because God has told us about them. They've been revealed to us. Okay? Now that gets us right to the heart of what we need to recognize here. What do we find when we encounter the God who is there, the God who speaks, the God of the Bible? Not just that he's a person with preferences and a will, but that his character is one of love and grace and concern for humans. Okay? He has great things prepared for those who love him. In fact, what Paul is referring to here is not the heaven to come, but the Savior who came. That's the whole focus of what he's talking about. If we want to understand the wisdom of God, it's manifested, he says, in just a few verses later, manifested in, or sorry, it's a few verses earlier at the end of chapter 1, verse 30. And because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. It's right there. This is what he's talking about. But what do we learn? We learn that, that despite the fact despite the fact that human beings are fallen, have rebelled against God in sin. Now, side note, um, the need for scripture, the need for revelation predates sin. When you open up the Bible and Adam and Eve are there, they need God to say, don't eat of this tree. They don't inherently know it. It's not a part of their nature. They need God to say, be fruitful and multiply and rule over the earth. Purpose needs to be articulated. We need revelation not because we're fallen alone, but because we're finite. Okay. However, the fallenness makes everything worse because now we have a problem. Now it's not just the rulers of this age that are doomed to pass away, it's all of us. And the revelation that God lays out through the scriptures and through the person of Jesus Christ is that whereas God could have just said, fine, go your own way, and gone silent. Instead, not only he, did he speak into that, but he came up with a plan to do something about it. To send his son in the fullness of time, born under a woman, born under the law, to keep the law we cannot keep, to die the death that we deserve, and freely invite us into relationship. That is the wisdom of God. That is the message. That is the purpose. That is the heart. Now, we need to be very clear here. Verse 10 again. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Okay, and so he says here, the gap has been bridged by God sending his Spirit, so now we can know. Now, a side note, not only does this help us in knowing the personal God, it also helps us in knowing more about the world. Because the God who made the world knows all facts with certainty. Now, it doesn't mean that he reveals all facts. But it means that the facts the Bible presents won't flip. They won't be proven unreliable. Okay? Uh, because his perspective is not relative. It's perfect and absolute. But also here, we need to understand that Paul is not merely saying 
God has made his spirit available to everyone so that we might truly know him and privatized revelation to each and every inner human heart. It's very easy to read the passage this way, but that's because we have become terrible readers. Okay? We don't use our observational skills when we read. We need to notice the transition in pronoun in verse 10. Go all the way back to chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to the pronouns. And when, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I was with you. Okay, and so as the chapter opens here, there's two parties. Paul, the preacher of the gospel, the planter of the church, the apostle of Jesus Christ, and you, plural, Corinthians. But notice when it gets to verse 10, it says these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, uh, verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Now one way to read that would be that I plus you equals we. But I would suggest to you that what Paul is actually talking about here is we the apostles. He's the only one who came and preached to them, but we... All the apostles received the Spirit of God. Now, why do I believe that's the case? I believe that's the case because that's what Jesus promised would happen. Okay. And so, look with me at the tail end of the Gospel of John. Turn to John chapter 14. Now, Jesus here is giving what we call the upper room discourse. It's effectively a sermon for the 12 disciples. Now remember, Paul is not one of the apostles, not one of the 12 disciples. He's not present in this sermon, but he does step into the office that we're talking about here. And second, we do have a tendency to read these verses as if they're promises for every one of us. But I would suggest to you that they're not. In fact, if you read John 14, 15, 16, and 17, you'll see when Jesus is talking about us. Because he makes it clear. He'll say things like, for all those who believe in my name. And then he'll make a statement. Or he'll say in John 17, not only do I pray for these, but all those who will believe their word and receive the gospel, those I pray for that. But notice what he says here in chapter 14, verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. Were you there, church? Were you there? Did you hear the things that he spoke to you? No. Notice what he says next, verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. What does he say here? uniquely that the apostles will receive the Spirit in a way that they will learn the rest of what there is to know and that they will remember everything that Jesus has taught them. Jump over to chapter 15 and look at verse 27. Sorry, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, another reference to the Holy Spirit, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and then verse 27, and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. Do you see the limitations there again? Who is it that the Spirit is going to testify to? Those who will testify who were with him from the beginning. 
And so here, Paul picks up and he says that the apostles have received that spirit and notice what it does for them. Okay. Verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. What does the spirit do? Revelation helps them to understand God's big plan, his whole person. You see this happen in a small way all the way back in Luke chapter 24 when Jesus is talking with his disciples and it says, and he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. Right? Now they have a unique ability to understand the Old Testament and how it relates to Christ. In fact, Paul himself in 2 Corinthians says, to this day when the Jews read the Bible, it's like a veil is over their faces until Christ takes away the veil and then they see as it really is. But not only that, not only do we get the idea here that God has uniquely spoken to the apostles by his spirit, but notice what it says next. Verse 3, we, the apostles, impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. What does it say here? Not merely did the spirit give them God's ideas, not only did the spirit help them to think God's thoughts, but that he actually gave them the words to articulate it. Okay. Now this is important because once again, there are many people who try and describe the Bible as being stuff God did and men described. That's not what Paul says here. Now that's a struggle for us because when we read the Bible, uh, for example, if the Spirit is the author of the whole Bible, why is it so tremendously diverse? Sometimes it's Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, but even when we pick a language, the, the turn of phrase that authors use. So Paul says, in Christ, and John says, abide. Same concepts, different language. The metaphors that John uses are light, and you know, there's, there's phrases that he loves. Paul has a different set. Okay. Why is it, for example, when we read First and Second Peter, we get really, really rough Greek? Wouldn't we think that God would be eloquent? The Bible maintains both that truly God authored all the scriptures and that the authors, lowercase a, whether it's Moses or Peter or Paul, also authored the scriptures. Okay? But not, and this is where we need to avoid two ideas here, not in dictation, as if God just leaned down and said, write down everything I tell you and just, you know, like a secretary would do. Now, side note, if you read a book that criticizes our view of the Bible, they will always say that's what we believe. I've never met somebody who believes in the dictation theory, period. It's a straw man. Nobody believes that. What we believe is linguistic incarnate. Think of Jesus Christ, fully human, fully God. Totally Jewish in a first century world who speaks Hebrew and Aramaic and maybe a smidge of Greek. But the humanity of Jesus doesn't deny its divinity. In the same way, the scriptures are God speaking through human personality. Now, there's a concept that's important here that we don't always think about as modern Christians, and it's called providence. The idea is simply that God oversees all of life. And if you understand the providence of God, this isn't really a struggle for you because in the same way that God can shape a message, he can shape a messenger. He can bring about the life experiences and the language and the illustrations so that when he's ready to articulate, it's exactly 
what God wanted to say. Okay? But what I want you to notice here is the claim that Paul makes. That he didn't just come to think the thoughts of God, but the Spirit gave him the words to articulate it. That makes his ministry authoritative. Okay? More on this in the weeks to come. But I want you to notice what this says to us tonight. It says that apart from Revelation, apart from Scripture, we may be able to know that God is there. We may even be able to discern a few things about him, but we cannot know him personally, nor can we encounter his great purpose and plan in human history apart from him telling us. And the good news of the Bible is that's exactly what he's done. Like it says here, no eye has seen this, nor ear has heard, nor has the heart of man even imagined. We should maintain as Christians that the Bible is too good for us to have dreamed up. That nobody would have ever thought of a plan this great. In fact, when Paul gets into the depths of God's plan, read Romans 9, 10, and 11, he says the wisdom of God is unsearchable and his ways are past finding out, right? Paul just bottoms out even trying to understand the complexity and the goodness of God's plan. But think of how we usually think of life. Think of what we expect of other people and think of what we think of God. Oftentimes we either make God so small that we accommodate him to our desires and we call the shots and we just, you know, tickle his fancy and then he takes care of us. Or other times we see God as so distant and us as so condemned that we struggle with all of our energy to set things right on our end. Sometimes we make God so personal that he's no longer divine, no longer holy. Other times we make him so transcendent that he's not personal at all. It's just a force. The Bible navigates through all these things and tells a story that, yes, is more paradoxical, paradoxical but it's also way more beautiful. The things that God has prepared for those who love him. Now, if scripture is necessary to know God personally, if it's necessary to understand the human purpose, if it's necessary to understand God's will and therefore fulfill God's will, if we must know it to know Jesus and we must know Jesus to be saved, then this creates a significant urgency. Because the idea here is what we know to be true and what we have in the Bible is necessary. Not just to know about God if you're interested, but to be in a personal relationship with God. Not just to have a relationship with God, but to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And the Bible maintains that without that, we have nothing. Jesus himself says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And you go, but... What does that mean for those who haven't heard? It's a very important question. But it's not one that we have to um, just ask into the void. Listen to Paul here in Romans chapter 10. When we talk about the necessity of Scripture, inherently we talk about the exclusivity of God's plan of salvation. 
So notice what he says here in verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice that there is propositional truth. Jesus is Lord. God raised him from the dead. That when we receive and we believe and we trust him, that leads to salvation. Okay, verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Then notice this, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. Do you know what that does? That says right there in Paul's mind, there's not just many ways to salvation of which Jesus is only one. There's only one Lord, and his name is Jesus. That's true for Jews and all the nations. He finishes here, he says, For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him for and he quotes here, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now listen to the questions he asks here. There's a chain. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Do you see the chain there? Reverse it with me. If people aren't sent, and the people who are, or if people aren't sent, then the sent people will not speak. And if they do not speak, then others will not hear. And if they do not hear, then they cannot receive. And if they do not receive, then they cannot put their trust in. They cannot believe in. When we talk about the necessity of Scripture, that's what we're talking about. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't become a Christian apart from reading the Bible or having it read or quoted to you. But the source of our whole message of who Jesus is comes authoritatively from these words. doesn't matter if you're reading a Christian devotional work uh, or, or you just see a billboard that says Jesus saves. It doesn't matter how you come about it. The source is here. And it is necessary. And so that should produce in us an urgency. Because it's not merely that we've found the Bible to be healthy or helpful for our lives. We believe everyone needs the message of Scripture. That there's no other way to know God, to know His name, to be saved by Him. Okay. But we need to understand that the necessity of Scripture is not just about the fact that we need God to reveal himself so that we can meet him, be introduced to him. Moses says in the book of Deuteronomy, and Jesus quotes it in the gospel, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In the same way that you need to eat, Moses and Jesus reaffirming says, you need to know the word of God. You need to nourish yourself. It's necessary. We cannot live on bread alone, but we need every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so this isn't, all, this isn't merely how you get introduced to God, come to know him personally. It's how you deepen that relationship. It's how you come to understand his will, not just the big picture, but where you fit in it. 
It's how you come to uh, embrace his character and let it shape your life. It's where you allow the Bible to flip your pieces and get your facts straight. To grow in our relationship with Jesus, we need God's revelation. And not just in some sort of privatized, quiet, still small voice speaking into your heart, but the definitive, let me tell you the whole thing from an authoritative witness who was there and who saw it themselves and was commissioned by Jesus to talk about it. That's what we need. That's the necessity of scripture. Let's pray. Our first impulse with the necessity of scripture, Lord, can be to um, question your fairness, but we really should see it first and foremost as a demonstration of your grace. It's not just that we need to know you and that we can't do it on our own. It's also that you willingly and, and for us undeservedly and lovingly made yourself known. And not only not only in the words that you spoke to your prophets, but also in your son, Jesus Christ, who was God in flesh. So the disciples heard the voice of God in a human mouth. It wrapped their arms around and embraced God in the flesh, reached into the sides where the scars were from the cross, knowing not only that you were alive, but that you are the God of love. By this, we know that God loves us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You have taken the initiative to make yourself known because we need it. And so we praise you for that tonight. And we thank you for that. And we ask God that we would make this a regular and a deepening part of our nourishment that we would read about the God who is there so that we could know the God who is knowable, so we could hear the God who speaks, and so we would listen to the God who is authoritative, whom we will give answer to, who is truly God. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. We're going to transition now to the Q&A if things came up and you haven't had a chance to text yet. Feel free. Uh, the number's right there. I'm just going to get my laptop set up and then we'll get going. Okay. I've actually got a few questions here from this morning. And so I'm just going to pull one up now and we'll answer. Like I said, at any point in this, feel free to send in more questions and we'll answer as many as we can tonight. Here's one from this morning. What about the people who legit don't have access to the scriptures? If the scriptures are necessary to know God relationally, how can they know him? Okay. Now, um, this is a very important question, but we need to parse a few things first, okay? Like I mentioned earlier, although we believe that the scriptures manifest this attribute of necessity, um, it is not the only way God makes himself known. As we'll see in weeks to come, he never makes himself known in ways that are incongruent with this. Okay. Um, but, uh, but, like I said, whether it comes through 
the testimony of a friend or reading a, uh, a Christian work that is not the Bible, a devotional work, uh, or, or a billboard, or even as there are many testimonies of, especially in the Middle East, people who are living in their Muslim lives and then just have a dream of Jesus. Um, God is fully capable of doing those things, okay? And so what we're saying tonight is not that somebody has to open a Bible or even that the Bible has to be written in their own language so that they can know God personally. But the only way to know God personally is through God speaking, okay? Now, there is the deeper question of this. It's like, okay, but still... There are people all over the world who don't know Jesus, who don't testify of these revelations, and who may never have anyone come and proclaim the gospel. What about them? Okay. Now, before we can really explore any answers, I think there's a few things attitudinally that we should get right. Okay. Uh, the first has to do with a conversation that a man has with Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. He gets Jesus' attention and he says, Jesus, are there few who will be saved? Right? Now, we don't know the integrity of his question. Maybe for him it's merely hypothetical, or maybe it's a deep and pressing concern that keeps him up at night. We don't know. But what's interesting is Jesus answers in this way. He says, as for you, strive to enter the narrow gate. For the way is broad that leads to destruction. And the narrow gate is, you know, uh, is the only way to salvation. What he does is he says the first and primary question has to be about your own fate. Okay? Now, I think this is helpful for a couple of reasons. One is, um, one is because there's always the possibility to find an excuse uh, and that doesn't actually solve your problem. No one is going to be justified before God saying, I didn't believe the message that was preached to me because I didn't know if they would ever hear it. Uh, and related to that, but on the flip side, there's no getting around the fact that if you know Jesus personally, it should produce an urgency in you that others would. And so if we are truly concerned about those in this nation or that nation, why not go? God has chosen to work through his church, to convey this message through the mouth of human beings who received it through the mouth of other human beings. Uh, you know, and, and so when the apostles are sent out, they're sent out first, but they're not sent out last. And so we have to watch out for our own motivation that sees this as an excuse to do nothing instead of a command to do anything we can. Okay. So that's attitudinally. Now, what about in the larger answers? We need to be clear of, uh, of two more things. One is that the New Testament, especially the teaching of Jesus, seems to point to a significant gradation in the consequences of a life lived apart from Christ. In other words, I'm saying that not all judgment the Bible personifies as coming is equal. Okay. So, for example, not only does Jesus contrast the audience in one city with another, but he even does it hypothetically. He says, Woe to you, Capernaum, for if the miracles that I did in Sodom 
had been done in their presence, they all would have repented. Do you see what he's doing there? He's taking two completely different times in history and he's relativizing them by opportunity. Now, I don't think you can get away from the reality of judgment. And this suggestion I'm going to make to you is not a biblical suggestion because the Bible doesn't actually address these things. Um, But it is interesting that when Dante wrote his Inferno, the first level of hell was for the pagan who never heard. And it wasn't a place of torment. Trust me, Dante's got plenty of ideas on that. It was just a place of hopelessness. Now, like I said, that's an unbiblical idea, but he is rightly recognizing the, uh, the edge that the Bible puts on judgment. Here's what's more important for me, two things about who God is. First, and you can see this in the scriptures themselves, God cares more about these people than you do. He does. So much so that he's already died for them in advance. So much so that he's already done everything it needs so that they can enter into salvation. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, you will see that the church gets off track, gets distracted, has in-house fighting, and God's like, hello, and he opens doors for them. Think of Cornelius. God comes to a non-Christian and a non-Jew and says, send for Peter and he will preach the gospel. And so he sends for Peter, and that's not all. Because Jesus knows that Peter is not predisposed to go into the house of some Roman. So he gives him this vision multiple times to make sure he gets it so that he's willing to go. And even there, the first thing Peter does is justify why he shouldn't be doing what he's doing. He says, I've never entered into a Gentile house before, but since God commanded me, right? That's all orchestrated by God. Is God capable of raising up a missionary and sending them out because there are people seeking him. Cornelius says yes. However, notice what God does there. He still sends Peter. This angel that appears to Cornelius doesn't preach the gospel. He says, send for a Christian. I think that's significant. The second thing we need to keep in mind is that at the end of time, When we stand before God, not only is he more gracious than us, but he is certifiably more just. And I believe that with all of the angels and everyone on earth, including those who are still resistant to the lordship of Jesus Christ, we will say, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. For me, it's all or nothing. Now, beyond that, I'm reluctant to give any answers because the scripture doesn't. Okay? And so anything I would say would just be what I could see or what I could hear or what could enter into the imagination of my heart and is therefore not what we need, okay? Let's look at another one here. In a similar way that many of the Jews knew the scriptures but did not interpret them in a way which allowed them to recognize Jesus, Could it be that we are also significantly mistaken in how we interpret the New Testament? Or is it different now that Jesus has come and the Holy Spirit has been given? How can we know that we are any less misguided than the religious students of Jesus' time? Now remember that Jesus testifies to this himself. He criticizes the religious leaders who know the Old Testament intimately. He says, you search the scriptures For in them you think you have life, but it is they that testify of me. He says, you've missed the key component of interpreting the scripture. 
which is that it's all about me, okay? Um, now, the questioner here asks, is it different in our age? And we should own up to those differences. It's different in two ways. One, there's a, uh, a significant sense where when Jesus comes, the revelation of God is complete, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that God's story is over. Uh, in fact, when we talk about Jesus' return in the New Testament, the phrase it uses is the appearing, and the idea there is of revelation, okay? However, from here on out, it's clearly and fully all about Jesus. And so, yes, there's a surprise ending that you get in the New Testament, but now we have it, okay? It's not like if you stop a movie three quarters of the way few, uh, through and you try and describe it to a friend not knowing that Bruce Willis is dead. It's different. We have the whole story in a significant way. In fact, this is what uh, the author of Hebrews says. Contrasting the Old Testament with the New. Chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Now listen to the fullness of this revelation here. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, this is the fullness, it is the final, it is the complete revelation of who God is. Second, as the questioner recognizes, we also have the Holy Spirit, right? A significant promise that God gave uniquely to the church. In the Old Testament, certain kings, certain prophets, some of the judges have the Holy Spirit come upon them and empower them for particular purposes. But what happens in the New Testament is God gives the, the Holy Spirit fully and freely to all those who receive Jesus Christ so that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so that does change the paradigm because the author of Scripture also resides in us. And that brings us to a doctrine we're not going to talk about this, uh, this series, which is illumination that not only has God spoken, but that he's given us the spirit to help understand the things that he said. And so yes, it is different for us. However, are we capable of getting it wrong? Absolutely, okay, absolutely. In fact, that's why the authority of scripture is so important. Because if the Bible is not the final and authoritative word of who God is, then we have nothing to determine where we're wrong. G.K. Chesterton said he lived in a time where everybody wanted a religion where they were already right. And he said, that's craziness. If anything, we should want a religion where we're wrong, right? That's where we're in danger. That's where the facts are incorrect and we're living out a life that's inappropriate. And the church is full of repentance because of the word of God. And not just the church. Read the Old Testament. Here, one of the kings of Israel is just going about his business and they find a copy of the Old Testament in the basement, covered in dust, and they blow it off and they read it and they go, oh my gosh, we're so off track, okay? If we rely on ourselves and how we view things, if we rely on tradition and what we learn from other men, we are always going to drift and be misguided, even the reformers, and that's what it was. The Reformation was a rediscovery of the truth of scripture. Even the reformers had this Latin imperative, semper reformata, always reforming. 
Does that mean that we're always at risk of completely getting it wrong? One, come back in two weeks when we talk about the clarity of Scripture. And two, um, two uh, let me take an example from postmodern hermeneutics interpretation to make a point. Okay? Here's the fear of postmodern hermeneutics. They call it the hermeneutical circle. Here's what it is. Anytime you come to a text, you come biased. You come with whatever limitations you have in intelligence. You come with whatever wrong ideas you have about the concept being addressed. You come with everything. That's the lens through which you read, and there's no taking that off because there's no not you, right? But the scary thing is, then you read the text through that, and then hopefully the text shapes you as a reader, but it's just a circle. It just goes round and round. If this is authoritative, if it's true, then we don't have a hermeneutical circle. We have a hermeneutical spiral. And the more that we allow ourselves to grind against the millstone of God's perfect work and all of his truth, then it does grind away the impurities, the places where we get it wrong. It's slow. It takes time. Martin Luther said that the Christian life is one of continual repentance, and he didn't just mean owning up when you go wrong. He meant con confessing where you've been believing wrong about God and setting it right. We should be regularly and consistently theologically repenting. Just to put one more, uh, just to put a fine point on it, C.S. Lewis, my favorite book from him is called A Grief Observed. It's relatively short. It was never meant to be published. In fact, when it was originally published, it was published pseudonymously because what it is, is it's the journals he wrote after the death of his wife, Joy. And it's C.S. Lewis wrestling with his own encounter with deep grief and death and loss. And I'll be frank, he wrestles. And it's scary when C.S. Lewis digs a pit because you wouldn't be able to dig yourself out. What if he doesn't and he just leaves you there? But one of the things he says that's always stuck with me is no matter where we're at, to some degree, our view of God is just a house of cards. And God is so faithful to knock it over. And if you've been walking with Jesus for long enough, you've probably experienced that where you have all life and it makes sense and it's comfortable and it's easy and then boom, something hits you and you're like, what do I do with this? If you read the story of the Bible, that's intentional. God does that because he wants to take you deeper, because he wants you to know him rightly, okay? And so, yes, the church gets it wrong, uh, but, um, but we also should have confidence uh, that our understanding of scripture grows Therefore, our understanding of God grows, and the more deeply we know him, like Jesus said, those who follow me will know my voice. You know, it starts to shape away those problems and misunderstandings. Could you discuss the foundational purposes for God creating us and then revealing to himself to us the why of creation and revelation. Okay. So, um, when we get back to the beginning, when we read Genesis chapter 1, we have some stated purposes that are explicit. And then as we keep reading in scripture, we have some that are not explicit in Genesis, but explicit in other places, but even in Genesis chapter one are implicit, okay? The ones that are stated 
uh, in Genesis chapter 1 come down to this idea of the image of God, right? And so God creates six days in a row over and over again. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let the waters be separated from the waters, and there was air. God said, let the earth be separated from the waters, and there was land, and then fish and birds and all of these things. But when it gets to man, God says something different. He doesn't say, God, let there be man, right? God doesn't say that. He says, let us create humankind in our image. And then it says, so God created humankind in his image. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. Okay, do you hear the repetition there? It's the focal point of God's creation. It's the pinnacle. What does it mean to be in the image of God? The easiest way to understand it is that there is some way that we are to be like God and that we are called to represent him. And that makes sense because if you keep reading, the next thing God does, and this is explicit stated purpose, is he says, one, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and two, have dominion over the earth. In other words, mankind's purpose in Genesis is to rule on God's behalf, to be his representatives over creation, and in doing so, reflect who God is. Now, that's a whole lot of purpose, but it's missing an essential point, okay, which is that an image, when it rightly reflects God, brings God glory, okay? It personifies, it, it pictures who God is. And when you read in uh, Psalm 29, when it says, the heavens declare the glory of God, we say, why did God create the world? For his glory. When you read in Isaiah, and he says, uh, uh, basically, that, um, that mankind exists for God's glory. Uh, when you read the letter of Paul and he says, uh, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or anything, do everything unto the glory of God. Okay? And so when we get to the heart of God's purpose in creation, for humankind, it's bound up in this idea of representing him rightly. But be, beneath that, the purpose for that representation is that it glorifies God. It promotes his worship. It shows his splendor and his beauty and his goodness. How can we know that the Bible we're reading today is the same as it was written by divinely inspired authors? Okay, let's lay out a first, fa first few facts here. Uh, we confidently know that we don't have any original copies, any autographs of the New Testament. We know that we don't have the first 1 Corinthians or the Gospel of Mark as it was penned by Mark. Okay? And so that becomes an important question. How do we even know that the words that we read, which are translated, but even in the ones that are in the original language, how do we know that they reflect what was originally written? Now, just a couple of things, okay? Um, first off, one of the ways that we get this wrong and it makes us nervous is we think of that game telephone, right? And so we think, okay, somebody whispered into somebody's ear and then they whispered and what happens by the end is it's a completely nonsense statement. It has nothing to do with the original. Recognize that that doesn't work with manuscripts. And the reason is because you don't write one copy, you write 10, you write 20, you write 100. And then of every one of those, you write 10 or 20 or 100. And so there's a difference between recognizing all of those may have errors and assuming that they all have the same errors. In other words, if we have good manuscript evidence, then we can compare and contrast and see differences, but resolvable ones. Okay. 
Now, that being said, um, when it comes to the New Testament, just as an illustration, um, from Greek alone, we have 5,000 plus manuscripts that span the first couple of centuries after it was written. Okay. Just to compare, of Homer's Odyssey, we have less than a dozen. Okay. So if we're confident that what Homer wrote was what Homer wrote, we have way more reason to be confident. Not only that, but the first copy we have of Homer's Odyssey is written 400 years after Homer lived. Some of the copies that we have of parts of our New Testament are within 120 or 150 years. Okay. And so if we're going to hold that line, we need to recognize that history is lost. Okay. But here's something I would suggest to you, okay? and I'll give you a really good ex illustration, one of my favorites. So about 60, almost 70 years ago, a shepherd boy in Israel was throwing rocks in a cave and he heard a noise clay pot shattering. And he went in, he found in the cave all of these clay pots, and inside were scrolls. We know those today as the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? In fact, it wasn't just that cave, but a few others. And what we found inside were some of the oldest copies we have of the Old Testament, okay? Now, just, just out of interest, by the time these were discovered, the Jewish population had articulated that Isaiah 53, this amazing prophecy of the suffering Messiah who would die for sins, was a Christian in interpolation. That Isaiah didn't write it, that it didn't exist in the days of Jesus, and that it was penned by Christians and then inserted into the Old Testament uh, and wasn't actually a part of it. But the Dead Sea Scrolls had a complete copy of Isaiah, okay, including Isaiah 53, and it's more than 100 years older than Jesus. Not only that, but that hundred years older than Jesus copy of Isaiah was incredibly close to the manuscripts we have now. There were only a handful of errors and most of them were grammatical or punctuation. Not one sentence meaning turns on the difference that happened within the time between the manuscripts we have of Isaiah and this one that is so much older. Um, and so you can study these things. You can look at manuscript evidence. It's fascinating. In fact, it's some of my favorite his, uh, stories in Christian history, uh, like Tischendorf. Just look into Tischendorf someday. Involve these things. But now we have so many manuscripts and so much comparing. Most scholars, and I'm not just talking about the ones who are believers. Most biblical scholars, even the ones who say, I, I don't believe what it teaches, still believe we know with confidence uh, that the way we read the Bible today is, is as it was written. Okay. That's all the questions I've got. Does anyone have a last minute one they want to throw in? We'll wait just a minute here. I think that's a pretty good place to close. If you're furiously typing, go ahead and finish it. I'll, uh, I'll answer it personally or I'll save it for next week. Um, but let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer.
Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your word and for your spirit and the desire that you have to be known. I pray as well, Lord, that we would really sense the urgency of the necessity of these things, that we would really believe that what we have is not just good news, it's essential news for life. I thank you for the questions, uh, for the honesty and the interest that we've seen tonight. Uh, and I pray, Lord, that everyone here would feel the weight of being a good student of these things, that they wouldn't use their questions merely as excuses, or they wouldn't feel their questions as fears to be avoided or suppressed, Lord, um, but that they would see their questions as pursuits and would trust that you're bigger than their problems and that your truth is uh, verifiable and stands up to our questions. We thank you for this evening. We thank you for Thanksgiving. We ask that you'd be with us this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.